This is the Change Order Podcast, where we discuss the ideas, people, and projects at the forefront of housing innovation. I'm your host, David Friedlander. On this episode, I chat with Brian Gaudio, founder and CEO of Module, a Pittsburgh-based startup designing and developing prefab infill single-family homes. Module is setting itself apart from many of today's single-family homemakers, whose homes are often characterized by cheap materials, large sizes, and extraneous features. Module is creating homes that are modest in size, extremely energy efficient, that work with a variety of standard infill sites, and whose actual structure can be expanded as homeowner needs expand as well. Our conversation touches on the state of American housing, incremental design and housing, why Brian is starting in Pittsburgh, and a bunch more. If you like this podcast, please share and sign up for our newsletter. For feedback, content suggestions, people to interview, or anything else, please shoot me a line over at david at hothouse.co. And thanks so much for listening. Hey, Brian. How's it going, man? Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for doing the podcast with me. Yeah, I'm glad we could uh, glad we could connect after reconnecting in New York. So um, yeah. always good to see you. That was a super fun conference. Um, and I don't usually say things like that. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I agree. When you stay for the second day um, and do the workshop, you know, yeah. it's it's it has to be, you know, worthwhile. So, yeah, I mean, okay, so for my listeners, uh, the, the conference was New Cities, uh, an affordable housing conference over at, uh, what are they calling it now? It's not Grand Central Tech anymore. Company. Uh, com- company. That's a pretty general name. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Grand Central Tech has more ring to it. But um, anyway, I thought it was a really, really cool conference and you presented and um, uh, alongside uh, the guy who's doing prefab housing for Mars, right? Um, yeah. 3d printed homes on Mars. That was interesting. Um, yeah, that's, that was an interesting parallel, but yeah, I thought it was a good conference, uh, with a lot of people talking about affordability from East coast, some West coast people and finance people, construction people, development people. So it was a good mix. It's always ha- yeah. good to have a mix of people at those events. And the city people, um, and it kind of some people from the middle. I mean, I don't. So you're from you're from Pittsburgh. Do you can? I mean, that's that's pretty. I mean, it's middle middle mm-hmm. east, but <laughs> but it's, but it's mostly mostly middle, right? Yeah, it's. Uh, I would say it's mid. Pittsburgh is more midwestern than the city claim likes to consider it is. Uh, so I think we're more Midwestern. We have a little splash of Appalachia and uh, some East Coast valleys, but I'd say we're Midwestern for the most Remind part. Remind me where you're from. Where you're from? So I'm actually originally from Pittsburgh. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, it's it's I don't know it's 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 germane to our conversation because you know there is such a focus on the coasts, um, you know, on, on affordable housing and the coasts, and and kind of innovation in housing and the coasts. Uh, so, it, you know, it'd be cool for you to, you know, kind of talk about how place affects your product. Um, and, you know, we can obviously, you know, it's a good, good, maybe a good segue to, for you to start talking about, um, about your product and then maybe, you know, going into how place affects it because, you know, every housing product, um, is, a you know, is, ideally is, is, is a, um, you know, has some relationship to, to, to where it's located. And, 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 you know, I, I think I was telling you about it, but like, I forget who it was. It was like, I think it was Redfin. Redfin did a, a thing of all the top 
fastest growing cities in terms of sales. And almost all of them were like Rust Belt places like, you know, Camden, New Jersey was number one. Newark was top five. Um, I don't know if Pittsburgh was on there, but I thought it was really interesting um, that all these, you know, kind of Rust Belt cities, cities that, you know, had had a had a heyday and maybe had really good bones um, are seeing this. I don't know if it might be a little soon to say a renaissance, but um, are, you know, we're seeing are seeing a lot of growth. So I, I would kind of think that Pittsburgh would be kind of in that category. So um, I think I, I think put two questions in there. <laughs> one, mm-hmm. is, one is, you know, can you tell us about uh, module your company and, you know, um, you know, the the relationship uh, the, the company and the company's product have to to place and maybe how that affects the larger uh, housing situation in your, you know, maybe in, in, the, in the middle states. Sure, sure. So our company module is about three years old and we are a startup based in Pittsburgh. And in terms of place, why we went to Pittsburgh to start is um, it's really because I'm a homer or a yinzer as we're called in Pittsburgh. So I'm a boomerang, left Pittsburgh in after graduating high school, went off to college, worked in industry, and then found my way back end of 2015, uh, and then started the company in 2016. And so our company is redesigning homeownership for the 21st century. Buy the amount of house you need today, add on as your family grows, income grows, needs change. So we're really thinking about what is a right-sized starter home that can be built on an infill lot, and that home can grow and change as a customer's needs change. So, you know, as a startup company, we're leveraging a couple of different pieces. We have a digital platform. So think about a 21st century process of purchasing a home. So a customer comes to our website, they fill out a form, we learn about their current needs, future needs, financial health. We take in that data and information and we say, this is the right sized starter home for you. And it's likely it's smaller than the typical builder puts out there. Um, and then we say, here's the potential locations that you could build that home in the city of Pittsburgh. And then here are the additions and upgrades you can purchase as you're living in the home to turn that starter home into a home that can serve you over the long run. And so we're thinking about a couple of different things, prefab construction, 21st century marketing, customer facing website, and then really high energy performance on our houses. Cause we feel that uh, compared to the average builder, we really want to promote quality in our homes. Um, now, why we started this is a um, couple of reasons. One, you know, I went to architecture school, and in architecture school, they tell you about how important design is. And then you get out in the real world, and you're like, you're scratching your head. You're like, you know what? I don't know if people care about design. I think the, de- <laughs> the people who are building cities are typically the developers and the large construction companies, and they are looking at a pro forma. And they're saying, this is what we need to build. And sometimes they aren't considering design. That could be an afterthought. And then sometimes even who is going to live there is an afterthought. And I thought that wasn't right. And so Module's goal as a company is how do we make good design more accessible? And how do we put agency back into the hands of the prospective home buyer or the person who's going to live in that space? How do we think about them when we're designing residential infill housing in cities? And that's kind of the ethos of why our company got started. Um, why Pittsburgh uh, and how does Pittsburgh impact our product? Uh, it's impacted in a couple of ways compared to New York, where you're sitting 
um, or San Francisco, where some of your listeners might be. Pittsburgh, as you mentioned, is a Rust Belt town. And we had our heyday in the Industrial Revolution, right? So U.S. Steel was headquartered in Pittsburgh. Um, I believe it was the first uh, billion-dollar company. And so it was sort of the Google of its time. And it was based, you know, Andrew Carnegie had based it in Pittsburgh. And the city was twice the size that it is today in terms of population. In the 1980s, we lost half our population. The steel industry died. And when the population left, half of our homes became vacant and the city tore them down. And so now today in 2019, we have about 27,000 vacant lots that are sitting in the urban core. So these aren't in the large suburbs. These aren't tracts of land in the large suburbs. These are actually missing teeth in the urban core of Pittsburgh. And we see those missing teeth as opportunities um, to turn those blighted lots into productive, sustainable housing. And so when we have the product that's on our website, which is sort of an infill type product, um, we'll build 16 feet wide, 18 feet wide, and two to th- you know one to three stories. Um, those units have been designed for the average Pittsburgh lot. And so we did a survey of all you know 27,000, and we said, here's the median lot size on these you know single family, two family, or three family uh, zone residential areas. And this product makes sense on average. So that's kind of how Pittsburgh has influenced. Our product, and then the other thing is because there's so many vacant lots, um, we've started to source properties for prospective customers. So we've been actually instead of just sitting in the value chain of designing and building prefab housing, we're now getting into the game of understanding how to source property for customers because there's so much of it here. Mm-hmm. Have you seriously considered doing spec homes? We have. Um, we just finished our first home for a customer and that was a custom design build. So they own the property and we were, had a design build contract with them. Um, but because of the data that we're getting from our website, I think we have a beat on which neighborhoods of Pittsburgh need the type of product that we have. And so we're actually working with the public entities right now because the public entities like the city of Pittsburgh and the urban redevelopment authority own thousands of lots throughout the city. We've talked to them about, saying, hey, could we acquire some of those properties and start to build spec housing at a reasonable price point and kind of mixed income strategy? So we're actually working on our first spec project right now. I was just over there at the site, um, a four-unit mixed income uh, project where we would be doing them on spec. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I know I, we talked about this before, but uh, I can't help but think of post-Green Homes out mm-hmm. in Philly. Um, you know, and they were just doing some pretty innovative stuff, really high energy performance, low cost, uh, very basic floor plans and whatnot. A lot of really clever ways of saving money. Um, I think the, the architect is, what is it? ISA? Yes. Um, and, but you know, you were telling me before you're like, you're talking to prospective partners and, or prospective clients, excuse me. And, you know, saying like, well, this is what you need for your starter home. And, I wonder if you've encountered, I mean, you probably you probably have a little bit of a self-selecting clientele, but whether I feel like there's a, there's a lot of, in terms of the general buying, home buying public, there's a lot of misinformation about what people need and don't need. Hmm. And I would imagine that one of your challenges is like, is uh, <laughs> re-educating people. Like, no, you don't need a 
you know, a three-story foyer, you know, yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and I imagine as a company, one of your issues is that you're probably, you know, in terms of price point, you are, you're going head to head with McMansions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in terms of educating customers, I think it is an important thing and PostScreen does some great work and we really look at ISA as kind of a, um, we love what they're doing. We've done some precedent studies on their projects. And I think from an infill perspective and some of the work they're doing in Philly, there's a lot of similarities to Pittsburgh in some cases and, and um, how they treat these infill sites and work with kind of bringing higher density um, to these infill sites is really interesting. Um, in terms of educating the customer, you're right. Some of them do self-select in or out. Uh, we're designing you know, smaller square footage and smaller footprint. We're using better quality building envelope. Our first home for a customer was designed to passive house uh, standards. We did not get certified. We were just under passive house certification. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so, passive house standard is damn near. I mean, it's like it's crazy hard to achieve, <laughs> but you can get there. You get ninety nine percent of the way with ninety nine percent of the benefits, right? Yes. Um, but in terms of educating customers, what we've found is. Through our website, we ask every potential customer, you know, number of bedrooms that you're looking for. And the number one answer is a two-bedroom home. So mm-hmm. you might be surprised. You might think that, you know, the average person might say, I need four or five bedrooms. But actually, the number one requested home on our website is a two-bedroom, um, one-and-a-half bathroom unit. And so to me, that's saying there's a whole swath of customers out there who aren't being served by the typical single-family product. And they're in this weird middle ground where it's like they might be living in a city in an apartment, which is significantly smaller, um, but they're at the point where they're ready to stop living on top of a bunch of other people. And it might be because of that. It might be because they got a dog, right? And they want a, a yard for their dog. That's honestly one of the, num- one of the number one reasons we, si- we see people interested in buying homes. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be that they're looking to downsize. And so they say, I don't want to live in an apartment. I don't want to move out to buy a McMansion because I'm not that person, but there's no middle ground for me. And so I think that's that type of customer is who's landing on our website. Um, so we have to do less education on space, but more honestly, more education on prefab construction and what that means. Um, I think the while in the kind of startup world and the VC world, everything's Everyone thinks that offsite construction is the next revolution and it's going to be amazing. Um, the average customer who who hears modular, the they may, <laughs> exactly, they're like, yeah. does this thing have wheels on it? Uh, right. You know, is this? It's a- funny. We, we live in such a bubble, you know, like when I think, you know, I think modular, it's like, oh, you know, the modern way of building. I mean, I realize it's been around for ages, but, but, uh, but it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know people who vote for Trump, like, really? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you really see the world that way? You know, like, I didn't, I didn't, didn't know there are people like you out there. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and so and many of you. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, I mean, uh, a, a nice segue, because this is something, um, you know, just in terms of nuts and bolts, like, you know, you're called module, but you're, um, I mean, first of all, you guys are, kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to say builder agnostic, but you, you have different, different suppliers in terms of who's making your building. You guys are the design and marketing 
Um, and I don't know if, I don't know if you're dabbling in finance or anything like that, but, but the design and marketing aspect of, of the home construction, um, but you're using other suppliers and you're not using modular per se. Is that correct? Or you, you're doing like a, um, panelized, uh, panelized construction. Yes. So it's, it's true. We do, you know, as a startup company, we're trying to be fairly asset light and there's some other startups out there who've gone on to raise money and say, you know what, we're going to build our own factory and we're going to start from the ground up. Um, Mm -hmm. We felt that it's a really capital intensive thing to do. You know, I I think getting a factory, (laughs) you know, five to 10 million bucks to get a truly a modular or an offsite fabrication facility up and running. And I, and I felt that that was a lot of money to spend when we didn't even have our first customer booked. And so why we're working with third-party manufacturers, one, we're in Pennsylvania, which is like the, the modular, right. there, there's Capital so many, the US, yeah. yeah, there's so many modular builders um, in Pennsylvania. And then there's a mm-hmm. lot of um, good panelized builders in the area as well. So we felt mm-hmm. that there was enough existing manufacturers that we could learn from them before we wanted to maybe do that on our own. Um, and the other aspect of it is, you know, learning the differences between modular and panelized. I think there's this giant spectrum of what is prefab and prefab can be everything from, you know, roof trusses are technically prefabbed and site builders, home builders use roof trusses all the way to completely finished in the factory, you know, modular three-dimensional boxes with drywall cabinets and appliances. So there's huge spectrum across the offsite construction world. And we will use both panelized and modular uh, manufacturers depending on the project. So certain projects make more sense for modular, certain projects make more sense for panelized, and there's benefits to both of those. Um, but right now we are agno- agnostic to, to both of those. It really depends on the specific project. Mm-hmm. So you just have a design library. Mm-hmm. Of, of different housing parts that um, I assume you, you have sort of a, a kind of a foundational thing and each one of them have their own um, capabilities in terms of how they can be expanded, right? That's correct. So we have a kind of four base units on our website, like a one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, and then a stacked duplex unit. And then um, depending on the project and depending on the site, we can do those either panelized or modular. Reason to go modular, we find that it'll be more cost effective because you have more work being done in the factory. Um, the reason to go panelized would be you have a really tight site and you can't deliver a box around a wine. You know, Pittsburgh has these crazy hilly streets. And so right. <laughs> getting the box up this particular street and on this back alley um, can be challenging. So one reason to go panelized would be because of site access. And then the other is, our panelized manufacturers. So Bensonwood did our first home. They're out of New Hampshire and they do passive house certified panels. So they do top of the line in terms of energy performance. And some of our modular folks um, aren't as sophisticated in things like passive house. So if a client wants passive house and they have a particular site that's really hard to access, then it becomes a panelized project. If the site is fairly normal, um, then modular is probably our go-to. Got it. Um, changing topics a, 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 a tiny bit, but, um, what made you, you know, I was watching, I just I went through your LinkedIn and then got to your, uh, 
to your background with the documentary, um, let's see, I wrote, I wrote it down here within, um, within formal cities, uh, and thinking, well, a couple, a couple, couple questions. Uh, one is, you know, how did, uh, it, it, you know, it, could you, can you tell us a little bit about the, the movie and how it informed the, you know, founding of module and and also just i mean i as as a as as sort of a, a density geek uh like why did you opt to i mean i i think you kind of answer this but maybe you can be a little bit more explicit why did you opt to do something you know more single family a little little higher end product um uh you know coming from your documentary which dealt a lot with kind of developing world urban planning and um it, it kind of more, more basic housing so uh, is that clear enough? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the documentary within Formal Cities, um, a good friend of mine who works at Kieran and Timberlake, actually in Philadelphia, Abe Drexler, he and I directed this film together. And the film looked at South America, cities in South America, five of them, um, Lima, Santiago, Rio, Sao Paulo, and Bogota. And we were asking the question, how, you know, looking at these informal, kind of the, the in-between, between the formal cities and the informal cities, so the favelas, the informal settlements, um, where those two lines were blurring, and what architects and designers were doing in those areas as these sort of, these projects in these um, urban acupuncture projects. Um, you know, a lot of those cities in South America have these significant large portions of the city are built informally. So it's self-built housing, oftentimes by um, working class people who move there uh, from the countryside, and then they don't have the ability to purchase a home, so they have to build their own home in these favelas. And in the case of Brazil, there's these favelas that are sort of crawl up some of the mountainside. Um, and architects started to work on projects in the informal cities, trying to provide um, increased quality of housing and infrastructure in those places. And so there's a lot of innovation happening in South America that we were curious to go learn about. And so there's a firm there in particular called Elemental, um, and Alejandro Aravena was the principal there, and he won the Pritzker Prize in 2016. Um, for those that don't know, it's kind of like the Nobel Prize for architecture. Um, so he won that award in 2016. And it's also pretty, I mean, for a lot of people who are familiar with architecture have probably seen it. It's like the kind of the, the basic, oh, well, maybe you'll, you'll describe that in a second, but the, no, the go ahead. basic con concrete form that's expandable, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And so um, Elemental was working in these neighborhoods in, in Santiago and what they found was with the government subsidy that they were given to do public housing, they could build, they could only do so much with that subsidy. So they had two kind of options. One, they could build a full-sized house with really, really poor quality materials, right? So with, you know, let's say a three-bedroom home with just really, really um, terrible quality of materials. The other option was to build half of a good house and then let the residents finish the rest of it. 
And so this concept of incremental housing became in vogue really in 2016 and a little bit before then because of Aravena's work. The reality is that work was happening since the 1960s with other projects in Peru and other places where there were architects doing, there was a project called Previ in Lima, Peru, where they were studying the informal cities and they realized that in the informal areas, people were basically building one bedroom units and then putting rebar through the roof. And then when they saved up enough money, they would buy more concrete block and stick another story on top of it. So that was happening in the informal areas. In the 1960s, this group of architects in the UN worked on this project called Previ in Lima, where they designed social housing to be added onto. And then in 2016, or in the early 2000s up to the mid-2000s, Elemental was really building off that work and taking some of those precedents and really pushing the limits with these projects in Chile. Um, so that concept of this incremental house that could grow with you just was like, wow, it just struck me as a really cool idea. And I said, how do we take this kernel and bring it to the U.S.? Um, and so why your question about why single family, um, because we had our first little Lego, we had built these little Lego models. I was, it's funny. I was looking through some old photos of like, what were the first concepts we were working through? And we took these Legos from my like child. I was in my parent. I'd moved back to my parents' house when I moved back to Pittsburgh to start the company. I was in there. That was, I was in their basement, you know, working <laughs> through these old Legos and was coming up with these concepts and sketching them. Um, but we looked at some multifamily concepts, but we felt that single family was an easier, more tangible scale to work through. Um, and if we were looking to get into, you know, researching and developing a product, it's easier to finance a single family home as a startup company than to go and be like, Hey, we're going to go build a hundred, you know, a hundred unit multifamily building. Um, by the way, last year I was living in my parents' basement. Um, can, can we go build it? So we <laughs> right. felt that sing, you know, single family right. could be a good Here's way. There's a $100 million dollar bank note. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, like, don't put it underneath your mattress in the basement. <laughs> right. so, so we felt single family would be an interesting uh, you know, model to start at. And a significant portion of our country's you know, housing is built on the single family scale. Um, yeah, roughly, roughly eighty percent, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and 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 I mean, obviously, there's there, there there's there's a there's a there's a need for it, um, and um, yeah, I mean, the, the these cities like Pittsburgh that do have, I mean, I don't I don't know Pittsburgh intimately, but I would assume it has a pretty decent, you know, late nineteenth century infrastructure, um, mm -hmm. and you know building more homes in, you know, kind of dense urban core is a, is a, is a net environmental benefit. Um, so. Yeah. And I think some of the, um, there is a lot of single family infill kind of like Philadelphia where you have a lot of these townhomes and these row homes. Uh, there's yep. a lot of that housing stock in Pittsburgh that either exists or was torn down. And so there's enough, more than enough lots uh, to play with. But I think also on the, you know, we started to get into, I know, you know, in your work in Life Edited and with some of the micro housing in New York, a lot of that kind of design ethos is, is what we're pulling into our projects in Pittsburgh. So actually we came to New York to, to learn about the micro housing project. I, we, I don't remember if you were involved on that micro housing project. Um, e 
Yeah, Life Editor was involved with it. Well, they were involved with the the RFP mm-hmm. uh, for Adapt NYC, which was uh, the city's micro housing um, pilot program. Mm-hmm. And so we came to study that project and met the um, some of the people involved there to try to learn how this kind of trend in New York how that was bubbling up and then, you know, what, of what of those things could be applied to Pittsburgh? Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's see a couple, couple questions. I mean, what is one, I, I guess I'm wondering what your, if you had like sort of a master vision for the, I mean, you probably have a, a vision, like a five-year plan for for the company. So I, I wonder what it looks like unfolding. Um, uh, you know, do you see yourself going into supplying? Do you see yourself becoming a developer, which is, you know, kind of the way a lot of, a lot of people are going nowadays, you know, like we work and, you know, all these, all these companies are starting to acquire properties, um, realizing that there's, you know, without too much skin in the game, there's, there's kind of limited returns. Um, so just wondering what you're, how you see scaling it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, Looking into becoming a you know a tech-enabled developer is attractive for us, um, at least in the Pittsburgh market. <clears throat> I think there's some very scalable tools that we're building, like the onboarding system for our customers and how we're streamlining the design process. So kind of the top of funnel where people come to our website and we're categorizing the types of leads by what housing they need. And then streamlining the design process through our platform, that, that is totally scalable. And we eventually see uh, that along with the manufacturing partners that we're lining up as able to be used by other builders and p- developers in other cities. I think that's ultimately where we would like to take this, where instead of the average developer saying, ah, I'm going to copy and paste you know, what, what, uh, what I see happening in my city. And that might be not aligned with the actual needs of the home buyers. Our platform would enable, you know, builders and developers, probably on the smaller scale, not necessarily the larger developers, but who don't have a whole architecture and construction shop behind them, um, to use our platform to build this right-sized infill housing solution in their city. It might be more mm-hmm. catered to the to the home buyers in their cities. So eventually, we will be there. But I think to get there, we'd like to prove out the model in the city of Pittsburgh. And I think that means us becoming a developer and using our platform to start developing. You know, we, let's, how could we get to 100 units in the city of Pittsburgh over the next several years? Uh, that's a question that we ask ourselves. We just did this kind of six-year plan, um, module six-year plan, because we're three years into it. And we could visualize, okay, two times, you know, in twice the amount of time we've been in existence, what would we be doing? And and we'd like to become a, a developer in Pittsburgh um, because, A, we we feel that to gain market penetration in one city, we have to do that. And it'll be a faster timeline to do that. But then, B, if we become a developer, we'll build tools for ourselves that eventually could be scaled to other um, other markets. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a concept that, that I hear come up a lot, uh, but... But the idea of a um, a branded home, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, which is something that essentially doesn't exist right now. I mean, there's a few. I would say there's probably a few like housing products within, you know, like like the next gen home, for instance. That's the ones come top top of my head. 
Uh, but I wouldn't call that a brand. It's just like a, it's just a design that meets a, a particular demographic need. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people don't, don't say, oh, that's a, um, who makes the next gen? Is that, um, is that KB or is that? Um, um, uh, it might be KB. Um, I think it's KB. Anyway. Yeah. They, they don't go like, oh, I, I want a KB home. They just like, I want the a home with this property, you know? Yeah. Uh, but what if there was a company that said, hey, I want a module home? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like I, I, I know what, you know, a friend of mine has one and I happen to know, you know, I know what they're about and, um, and I could see how that'd be a really big benefit. I, I, I forget the exact number, but there's just like some insane number of, uh, uh, um, you know, usually, um, builder developers, uh, for single family housing. It's like, you know, it's like thousands upon yeah. thousands, it might even be like hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's um, so many small mom and pop builders throughout our country, right? There's still the larger builders like the Lennar's KBs are, are kind of scooping Lennar, up. Yeah. I think it, I just looked it up. It's Lennar. Okay, um, okay, cool. yeah. but there Sorry. are a lot, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they're hurting. Uh, <laughs> um, there are these large, you know, home builders out there that are, you know, they have different brands to relate to different types, you know, sort of their, uh, baby boomer brand. Some of them are starting millennial brands. Um, but there's a ton of mom and pop builders out there that don't, you know, don't have any brand, um, and might, you know, could become module sort of preferred partners. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think a company, you know, sort of zooming into another space, a company like Common, right, is finding its own uh, traction as a brand in the co-living space. And I know you've been dealing a lot in the co-living space, but I I look to Common, um, Brad and Sandy and some of the people at Common as creating their own value and their own kind of onboarding process. Um, in the co-living space that we'd like to replicate in, you know, in the single family infill housing space. So I, I, I look to companies like common as these in these kind of as a peer, but in a separate market, but we, we always like to learn from, from companies like common. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting drawer, um, you, you know, drawer, right. Mm-hmm. Drawer Pollock. Yep. Um, I mean, he, he brought up, you know, one of the big innovations with WeWork is that they, you know, they own, they kind of own the customer and that the, you know, kind of supply agnostic, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they work with whatever developer work with you. And I could see how, you know, that could, that model could apply to you, um, that you have a distributed supply network and, um, but have a, you know, but you own the, the, the customer acquisition. Yeah. And um, I think, I, um, I think no, some of the, you know, some of the, larger home building brands don't necessarily they're not as in touch with their customers as we could be. Um, and that's where like when on our website, when people, you know, we've had, we had this housing personality quiz that we had over a thousand people fill out, just giving us what their needs were. And it was this fun, uh, engaging quiz. And, really understanding on the ground, what does the 21st century buyer need? I don't feel that a lot of the larger builders are able to deliver that product. There was that making room exhibit in uh, DC and they talk about the number one U.S. household is a single person living alone. Number two household in the U.S. is two 
adults co-living together. And that was almost 50% of the market, mm. I think. And if I'm, wow. and I'm thinking, okay, we have 80% single family housing stock in our country and about half of the, of the households in the U S or one or two person households, like, why are we building a bunch of five and six bedroom homes? Just something doesn't make sense there. Um, well, I mean, it makes sense if you treat housing as a commodity, <laughs> you know, like if you start, if you, if you say, okay, well, housing is being treated as a commodity, then it makes complete sense. And, and then the, you know, then the economics take the, you know, take the, the driver's seat and human centered design takes a backseat. Right? right. So how did housing become a commodity? Like when did that really turn into a commoditized product? Uh, I am probably not the person to to talk to you about this. I don't know enough about finance reform. I'm sure it was, you know, it was, it was somewhere in the 80s and 90s um, that there is, you know, legislation that that supported, um, you know, the commodification. I mean, it, it was interesting. I I, I kind of wax because, you know, the recent Trump tax bills actually disincentivize people to for home building or for home buying, and I was like, who's benefiting in this? And then. Uh, I kind of I I, re, I realized that like you know so much of the single single family and multifamily housing is going into the hands of big private equity yeah. and uh, you know all these holding companies and these guys are probably all friends with Trump you yeah. know um, so that's you know it's like oh no 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 one no one no one has no one can afford to buy a, a home anymore can finance a home anymore so let's just put all the money in the you know consolidated in these you know these massive holding companies mm-hmm. um, anyway it's kind of depressing. Um, uh, but I mean, an- anecdotally, certainly, um, you know, what you're finding is, uh, it, it, you know, totally tracks with what I know about what people really want. They want, they want smaller, but not tiny homes, mm-hmm. you know, um, they want it, they want to live in walkable neighborhoods, um, you know, all these, all these kind of basic stuff. And I, it makes me think of, um, the, you know, I don't know if you caught this ahead of my newsletter a few weeks ago, but it was like the national, uh, the uh, uh, NHB um, uh, comes once a year, comes out with this, uh, the new American home. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fucking awful. <laughs> um, uh, the last one was this, this year's is like 8,000 square feet, but last year's was 11,000 square right. feet. And it's like in some sh- shitty ass Greenfield development in Orlando or Vegas. And it's like, come on guys. <laughs> like, yeah. fuck. Um, there was that great article. I don't know if you caught it. And, uh, and it's how actually how I caught wind of it in, um, in the times from uh, what's her name, uh, the woman from Spur, and she was like the you know the new American dream home is is a condo, um, hmm. but you know just like you know really reevaluating what people need versus yeah. what people are told they yeah. need because what they're told they need is just like these you know, these fucking monstrosities. Yes, um, anyway, you know it's Randy. interesting. I would. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. I pulled it up on my computer, the new American home, and. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous the size of it. Um, and at the International Builder Show, there was another house that KB worked on. Um, and I'm, let's see, KB. It was a it was a home that they worked on with uh, Hanleywood, and it was a mm-hmm. it was called Project Connect. So it wasn't the new American home, but it was oh. another one of these demo oh. homes out there. But what I found, I was like, yes, they're, they're listening to something, was they had a basically a built-in, they had flexibility, 
built into the unit. They were using prefab. What was it called again? It was called Project Connect, and I think Connect with a K. Uh-huh. And it was, uh, and maybe uh-huh. in the project instead of a C a K, I think. Um, uh-huh. But in that home, they employed a couple of things. One, they used a panelized wall system. Uh, they worked with a company, um, I think it's called Integra, um, out of the West yep, Coast. Yep, yep, and Yeah, they're Irish company, yep. uh, Jerry, whatever. Yep. Um, yeah. So they worked with mm-hmm. them on panelized construction, so using offsite construction. Right. And then the other thing is they had almost a built-in ADU into the house. So they had mm-hmm. a separate entrance, and so they were using it as this is potentially rentable space or where the kids can come home and live. And I thought that while the home was still much, much bigger than it needed to be, I thought those two components were interesting. And I was like, all right, we have a rentable, we have a much smaller version of that on our website called the Duo. Um, And I'm like, okay, trends are now aligning. So I thought that as opposed to the new American home, which was probably gargantuan, uh, at least this KB project was starting to pick up some of these trends. Yeah. Um, I think it was actually, I just saw it like a couple of weeks ago, but do you know, do you know Joe Wheeler? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. And he was doing the future house thing. And they, he was doing a, con, I think he was doing a collaboration with, with KB as well and doing like all these panelized assemblies. And, and his, and his, you know, the future house thing is pretty small as well. So, yeah, I think they, I mean, maybe it's not totally lost on the big home builders. Yeah. But. yeah. Um, but I think still their bread and butter product is, um, overall out of touch with the 21st century buyer. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if, uh, I mean, it seems like this discourse has been going on, um, you know, the making room exhibit at the national building museum was, it came out of, uh, a New York organization called, uh, CHPC or you, you, you know, you know, those guys. Um, Citizens Housing and Planning Council, and you know, really just talking about the the demographic uh, demographic design um, you know, uh, uh, incongruency, I, mm. I, I suppose. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, so it's cool to see you know that 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 you and other people are you know actually starting to do stuff. I do think, you know, I I mean, you're not asking, but I, I do think your your business plan should include spec homes because I don't think people know what they want until they see yes, it. You know, yes. like like they're just not they're just not going to ask for it. And people, and especially if you give people too many choices, mm-hmm. like people are horrible at making choices. They're not designers. <laughs> yes. You know. <laughs> yes, I agree. It's like the rest. It's like you know when you go to a restaurant, and you see the menu that is like a it's like bound and it has binder. And it's got 20 pages. I'm like, okay, this is right, way right. too much. Yeah. No, no, no. Give me three pages. Yes. <laughs> give me like, yeah. give me a couple things that you do really well. And I want the right. chef to make the decisions for me because I trust the chef. Not, you know, I don't want <laughs> food from five different countries on the same menu. And I think we're trying yeah. to take the same approach. And that's, I agree. That's why we're getting into to some spec homes is because the timeline that a customer wants to get into a house um, versus the timeline that uh, versus the amount of customization that you can offer in a custom project. Um, You know, a a custom project is going to be 12 to 18 months in most places, right? With the zoning and permitting, right? That construction timeline might be six months, but the rest of it will take a lot longer. And the average customer, when they come to our website, they say, I want to be in a house you know, six to 12 months, 
And you can't custom design someone a house and get them in. You know, if someone feels otherwise, they should call me and tell me how to do it. But I don't think you can get someone into a custom designed home in six to 12 months. And so spec with kind of, I will call it a data. Someone is really decisive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So spec with, um, with some of the data that we're collecting on what customers, the average customer is looking for, I think is the next wave of what we'll be doing because we can get home people into homes faster. And honestly, we've spent a ton of hours and time on our side thinking about um, those sort of different customer profiles from the young professional who's, you know, has no kids to the baby boomer who's now an empty nester. Like we've thought about their needs and um, honestly picking, you know, the brush nickel versus the bronze finish on your cabinets isn't really a design decision that's going to improve your quality of life, right? Those are these sort of micro decisions and those aren't as critical as how good is this building envelope, right? And so I think us as the professional- Well, they're also, they're also decisions that are not necessarily made better by the homeowner making them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, 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 the home, the home or the homeowner might not the yeah the homeowner is not an artist or a you know or a designer or a, an architect so they're not necessarily you know they might make poor decisions <laughs> yeah and and i know every person has will put their own personal touches in the house um after they're living in it um but oftentimes you know people can get hung up on the small decisions and that will turn the construction timeline longer and longer and mm-hmm. um you know, ultimately that's not in the best interest of a, of a customer. So shortening the design timeline and, and I think there's a mis, miscommunication and people feel the average single family home buyer believes that customization means it's better design, but just because you can right. add on the extra sauna room <laughs> doesn't mean it's better design, right? So customization doesn't mean design. And I think to some of the larger builders see customization as a way to upsell customers and kind of get more upgrades out of them. Um, but that's always not, that's not necessarily improving the quality of the house. It's just making them feel like they have more agency and takes, takes more time. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll start wrapping up, but there are a couple, couple questions just in case, like, um, uh, just talk money. Um, uh, prices and then also your, I mean, in case any investors are listening, whatnot, what's your business model? Um, so, uh, I know, I mean, I know basic pricing of your units and it's a fair amount higher than, you know, mm-hmm. than let's say the median single family home or town home in, in, you know, in your area. Mm-hmm. So maybe you just want to talk about that and then also talk about, you know, as, as someone, you know, who's really coming on, um, you know, is an asset light, asset light where, where you, where you guys, um, mm-hmm. make money. Yeah. So in terms of our products, you know, our per square foot costs are going to be a little bit above the typical stick bill construction. And so offsite construction, I tell people it's not in our, you know, we just finished our first home for a customer. We don't have our, you know, an entire vertically integrated supply chain yet. So we like offsite construction because it's faster construction time, better quality control, not because it's cheaper right? Our homes are of better quality than manufactured housing, right? Sort of the HUD code homes that are being built. So we are much better quality, but we'll do um, 
uh, faster construction time, but we we are not cheaper, right? In Pittsburgh, you can go buy an existing house. It's going to be a, a smaller price point than us. So on our website, we have pricing there and our pricing, um, like for our two bedroom home, uh, I believe the cost there is around $200,000. Now that doesn't include site work, foundation and utilities. So those things are left off that price because those vary site by site. Um, but to give you some context in the city of Pittsburgh, we'll be selling two and three bedroom homes in the 300000 to $400,000 range. I think that will be our sweet spot. And I'm sorry, how, how, how big a homes are those? Um, let's see, that'll be about 1100 maybe up to 1500 or so square feet, depending on bedroom and bathroom count. Um, and some of those will have a full basement that's unfinished, but. And just for context, I think the average new or median price for a new single family home is around, um, it's around 340 or something yeah. somewhere thereabout. It's, it's actually, I mean, the average sales price or the median sales price for a new home or no, 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 for an exist for any home or existing home is like, it's like in the low twos, yep. like 220 or something like Correct. that. Correct. And so we're, um, you know, cost comparable, I would say, um, better quality. Um, but a lot smaller. I mean, I mean, a lot higher quality, smaller. Yes. And then, um, but you know, you're, you're buying less space than the typical home. And a lot of that is empty air that you're purchasing. So um, that's our value proposition. I think eventually we'd like to be, get, be able to sell a product, a new construction product in the twos. And we have some ideas around that. Um, we're not there mm-hmm. yet, but we have some really interesting ways to get to the twos. Um, that other builders aren't thinking about. Um, and then in terms of business model, essentially, you know, when we're doing our spec homes, it's fairly similar to how a home builder works on that initial purchase. So, you know, you have, you know, your, whatever, your $300,000 house and you have your typical builder markup, you know, a good builder, a good home builder, some of the publicly traded builders are, you know, profit margins in the 25% range. So it's a low, lower margin business than typical startup. Um, we do have the ability to sell additions and upgrades onto the house. So if someone wants to add on in the future, we've designed our homes such that you can add a story onto them on top or additions in the rear. So we see that, you know, that's another line of business that we could tap into is those additions and upgrades as someone's living in the house because the shell, the quality of the shell is so good. We're hoping that our customers don't get sick of the house. Like a lot of folks who move in and like, okay, this doesn't really suit my needs. Um, but we're hoping that we build a really good shell, put in the infrastructure so that you can add on more space, and then we could potentially uh, have a kind of higher lifetime customer value there. Um, so it's you know fairly similar to home builder in terms of our business model. Okay, got it. Uh, uh, but but you're but as as uh, you're I mean you're not you're the marketing and the marketing and design aspect of that, mm-hmm. not the, not, so in a normal model, the, the builder would, you know, the, the builder developer, I mean, I guess I, ostensibly there's, there are architects designing <laughs> single family houses. I don't um, know. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So on our spec homes, we'll essentially be the builder developer. So we'll take the same okay, profits cool, that a builder it. developer would, but in mm-hmm. the future, when we're licensing our designs and marketing platform to other builders, then we'll take, a similar fee to what an architect would would take right on a project. So if there's a builder out in Seattle working on a project using modules, platform and designs, then we'll be 
um, taking a fee similar to how a, you know, a designer on a project would. So that's a much less, you know, we're taking in a lot less revenue on those projects, but the idea and the hope is that eventually once we have our brand up and running, that we'll have, you know, thousands of units around the country being built through module. So, um, you know, more of a design fee type of business model there, um, versus in Pittsburgh where we're basically the builder developer on the project and we have similar types of profit margins to those. Yeah. Well, I mean, and back to the earlier conversation, if you're brand could be a, a value add, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, that like, Oh, I've got a module home. Um, you know, that, that if that could, if that could entice people to, you know, to build with local home builders, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm sure that would be a good value prop for them. Yeah. Um, I, you kind of, the, the only other question I had was about, about the expandability because, you know, you're talking about the incremental homes in South America mm-hmm. And I was just thinking like, oh, well, well, of course you can have incremental home because, you know, you know, probably the Chilean DOB is not quite as, uh, you know, <laughs> is, is quite as hardcore as, as uh, New York City's or, yep. or Pittsburgh. Um, but um, I mean, you're kind of you're kind of leaving it open as this big possibility, right? Yeah, it's it's a good question the incremental aspect to our home so we're designing our floor plan such that you can add a stair in the rear of the house and then we design the roof so that it can be removed and reattached when you add another story um so we're building in some infrastructure and actually on our next project we're going to attempt to demo we've done we've prototyped that in a kind of a shop environment and now we're going to uh on our next project we'll attempt to showcase that technology and how it's used it's not space age technology we're still using wood frame construction Um, Mm -hmm. and we'll demonstrate that. Um, the one thing I'll say is, uh, as customers come to our website, um, while investors feel that the expandability is really intriguing and an interesting concept, you know, the customers that are coming to our website in Pittsburgh are actually coming not necessarily because of that, just because of they're looking for a smaller square footprint. Um, they want the quality design that we're bringing to the table and they need it built in a faster construction time. So the value prop that the average customer is coming to us for is actually kind of the baseline product and not necessarily expansions and upgrades. Um, but we'll see after we demonstrate yeah. this first project with the expandability in it, uh, if that opens consumers' eyes to that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, by necessarily, it's it's a down-the-road type of thing anyway, right? I mean... Mm-hmm. You, you, you just built your first house. So it's unlikely they're going to want to expand <laughs> a month after yeah. moving in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you described your project, but it's what, it's like 800 square feet and it's like a, it's, it's essentially an ADU, right? Yeah. It's basically an ADU at heart, 880 square feet, one bedroom, one bath. It's, it's, it's on our website and we have a little virtual tour that you can take and it's all one story. Um, the customer owned a home on the street and they bought the vacant lot that sits behind their house and they're building this home for their parents. So, uh, more or less an ADU, although it's on a separate property. Got it. Got it. Cool, man. Um, I think, uh, we can, we can start wrapping it up here. Uh, this has been super fun conversation as usual. Um, anything else that you want to, you want to add to, uh, the conversation? Um, I, I, well, actually the one thing I will add is we're working on the, our next project that we're working on is a four unit mixed income housing project in Pittsburgh, where we're using 
partnering with the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Pittsburgh to, to, again, purchase some of the vacant properties that are sitting off the tax base and then turning that into a mixed income housing project where we'll have some single family homes for sale. And then one of those homes will be sold to an income qualified buyer who's making 80% of the area median income. So we're uh, this is kind of our first foray into mixed income housing. And mm-hmm. it's part of our goal is how do we make design accessible and affordable? So we're trying to put the put our money where our mouth is and uh, deliver on this strategy in a neighborhood that needs you know, new, both new construction homes at market, and they also need homes for uh, people who can't afford market rate housing. So this is the first project we're really excited. We just got zoning approval on, so hopefully we'll break ground later this year on it. So you said four four units, mm-hmm. and is it, it you're, are you getting city money, or, or how does it work? So out? the city has a couple of different programs. Um, so we're three of the units are just done market. Um, but the fourth mm-hmm. unit, we're partnering, we're being co-developers with this nonprofit in Pittsburgh. Uh, the Neighborhood mm-hmm. Development Corporation in Pittsburgh is called the Bloomfield Garfield Corporation. So because we're nonprofit developer partner, we'll be applying for a grant from some of the local foundations. And then the city has this housing opportunity fund. So they increase the real estate taxes uh, and some of that um, windfall from the increase in real estate taxes is going to be applied to helping support affordable housing. So we put in a grant application there. And then we're also working with some corporate partners, um, corporations who care about healthy, energy efficient housing will be contributing to the project. So we're sort of piecing together. We're not using low income housing tax credits, just kind of piecing together this gap financing for the project, um, which is an interesting thing to learn how affordable housing is like a giant wedding cake with a bunch of different layers of financing. So hmm. kind of getting some education there uh, as we work mm-hmm. on this project. Yeah, cool. Um, and, and who's, I'm sorry, maybe you said this, but who's developing the the, the other three units? Uh, we are. Or is that, is you kind of bundling? Yeah. Okay. So we're as a, as an organization, uh, we're going to, to, this is again, sort of the first time we're in the spec uh, business and the mm-hmm. first time we're getting into the affordable housing side of things. So it's a total of a four unit project. We're essentially the developer on the project and we're using mm-hmm. our designs, our manufacturing partners uh, to deliver these, these uh, four units. So are you, have you, um, I just, I just had a, I just said, Oh, I have you, or do you, or have you considered uh, starting up a, like a real estate fund? Yeah, we've considered that. Um, I think eventually um, we will need that because if we're trying to get to 100 homes in Pittsburgh, the f- you know, as opposed to selling developer A, B, and C, um, you know, going directly to those capital sources and saying, "Hey, here's the types of housing that we're looking to build." We'd like to do it on an impact model with the blended return where we are be able to build some of these units at an affordable price point. Um, finding the right sort of capital partners uh, is something that I'd really like to do because, um, you know, to work with another developer, um, they'd just be taking another cut out of the project and would make the numbers a little bit harder to, to, to deliver to the end user. So, um yeah, so creating a development fund that's specific to module, I think, is a really interesting idea that we're that we're uh, considering. Well, if anyone's listening and <laughs> and wants to go in on a fund for you, I mean that almost everyone I've talked to 
in, I mean, this seems to be the, the, the thing with anyone trying to do something new in, in housing and construction. It's like, man, I wish I had a, you know, I wish I had a, a real estate fund. So I didn't have to like go groveling to people who were like, you know, just keep on asking like, uh, this has never been done before, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we need to create a consortium fund where everyone who's doing something crazy should get together and find all of their crazy yeah. friends. And we should create this new fund. We'll call it the, uh, um, CAF, the crazy affordable house or CAHF. Yeah. I- I mean, not, not to be like a dick about it, but it's like, you know, like if you think about it, like the way that things are done currently is crazy. You know, <laughs> that's true. It's like, just like keep on cranking out this, you know, these bullshit Greenfield McMansions, you know, that are just like a, a, a blight on the environment. They socially isolate people. They, you know, they, they leave seniors with too much house to pay for and maintain and, you know, and, and like, you know, expand car culture. So, you know, the, 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 the word crazy, um, should be used, uh, That's <laughs> carefully. That's fair. Um, it, actually that it was like one of what I, I had a, I had a business tagline for my consultancy, which was like, um, we, I, I make, um, uh, I make, you know, weird ideas sound normal and nor- normal ideas sound weird. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Because really, the way I mean, the way that we do things is so backwards. That's you know, it's true. like that should be weird. That's true. Like, why do we keep on buying? You know, building more luxury towers when you know, like, like they said vacant. It like, doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm again, I'm ranting again. Um, we're at an hour, so I think we'll wrap it up. Um, so, uh, where do people find you? People can find us at Module Housing. M O D U L E housing.com and they can email me at uh, brian at modulehousing.com so we're we're fairly active on twitter and facebook uh but website's the best place to find us cool and i'm i assume i'll i'll, I'll link all this stuff but um i assume all your social stuffs you can get through through your mm-hmm. website awesome man uh well really great talking to you and uh yeah that's about it all right thanks for having me on thanks brian talk See to you later You are just listening to the Change Order Podcast. There are links on where to find Brian and Module in the show notes. You can also find info on how to sign up for the show's mailing list and how to get in touch with me for comments and suggestions. And thanks again for listening. Until next time, stay housed.